Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. This is the Loving Liberty broadcast. Glad you could be a part of it. And uh, by the way, the lines are open right now, 801-254-1640. Just thought I'd point that out in case you uh, have the urge to call up and join the conversation. There's a lot going on, so much so that it's it's almost hard to narrow it down to to where do we begin. But among the things I would uh, like to touch on today... One of these, this, this is the hot button one, so you know you may want to limber up your dialing fingers if you want to weigh in, is showing compassion to migrants a crime? Let that one sink in for a second, and uh, we'll, we'll get to it here in a few minutes. But um, governments around the world are putting humanitarians on trial. It's not just ours. It's not just President Trump's efforts to slow the flow of migrants across that southern border. But uh, people who leave water... For those who are traveling across the desert are finding themselves charged with with felony, harboring fugitives and things like this. I mean, I get it. There's some strong feelings. There are some really strong feelings about uh, people coming uninvited to this country. But I have to ask, is there is there a point where we need to set aside our humanity or we need to say, you know what, the compassionate thing to do is to call the authorities and have these folks hauled off and detained and either deported or, you know, otherwise held in, in a detention facility. So we'll get to that here in a few minutes. Um, also, this is a great one for anybody who has uh, noticed that uh, the, the campaign for 2020 is really underway. And I forget what well, we've got two dozen now, two dozen Democratic candidates. They are falling all over themselves, the presidential candidates, in offering people free college tuition and other political candy in hopes of getting their votes. By the way, you know, Bernie Sanders, I think, is probably the best at this, but but it looks like all of the candidates are, are currently, you know, promising. These are things that we will do for you, and that's that's how you get people's vote. That's how you win their allegiance. Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation has a marvelous commentary about ending all state support to colleges and universities. I can already hear some of the shocked gasps. <gasps> But but how how then would people become educated? Well, just the way they did in the old days, before these institutions were primarily state-supported. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. Also on tap, um, if there's time, we'll talk a little bit about the coming show trial of Julian Assange. Posted a story yesterday about why is it that, that so many powerful elite people, not only in the U.S. government, but in governments around the world, are so angry at Assange. Why do they want to see him not only extradited to the U.S., but tried and executed for espionage? Well, regardless of what you think about Julian Assange, there are some things that have to be understood. And part of uh, what has to be understood is he blew the whistle on some really dirty dealings. And it takes a fair amount of sophistry and not a small amount of mental gymnastics to try to justify why these things should never have come to light. Just because, uh, I don't know, is it inconvenient? Is it embarrassing? How about this? What if it's wrong? What if it's immoral? What if it's unethical? What if it's illegal? Are we supposed to just turn a blind eye because uh, someone invokes national security? 
But I want to start with something a little bit closer to home. I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, there was a, a court ruling the other day. I think it was just two days ago. The Supreme Court ruled that um, I'm trying to remember the, the, the exact term. But it's like it's like the sovereignty of the federal government and the sovereignty of the states are two different things. And essentially, double jeopardy is not the protection, according to a majority of the justices, that uh, many of us have been led to believe that it is. Now, of course, double jeopardy means that if you are tried for a crime and you are found not guilty. The government can't come over, can come after you again for that same crime. But what this appears to do is open the door to states or other entities that that may have an interest. So if the federal government, say, uh, tries, let's just say, for instance, uh, the Bundy family, and they fail to make their case or their case falls apart like a soup sandwich, and the case is, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase, dismissed with prejudice, just hypothetically. Does this mean now that the state of Oregon or perhaps the state of Nevada can take another run at the Bundy's? Because of this Supreme Court ruling? Look, I don't have a great legal mind. In fact, I, I have no legal mind whatsoever. But Judge Andrew Napolitano has a pretty good shake on this. I want you to hear what he has to say as he breaks this down in about three minutes. Welcome to my chambers. Can the government punish you twice for the same crime? It seems like a simple question to answer. And the answer should be no. We have a clause in the Constitution of the United States called the Double Jeopardy Clause which was written to prevent the government from trying you twice or punishing you twice. But the story I'm about to tell you has an unhappy outcome. A man named Terrence Gamble was driving his car in Alabama. Mr. Gamble, in his youth, had been convicted of robbery, so he was a convicted felon, but he served his time, and he was a productive member of society. But when the police stopped his car because of an alleged cracked taillight, And the police asked for permission to search the car, which they say he gave them. They found a loaded handgun. Now, that triggered two events. A prosecution by the state of Alabama, because it violates Alabama law for a possession, for a felon to be in possession of a a loaded weapon, and it violates federal law. So he pleaded guilty to the Alabama law and went back to jail and was serving his time. And while in jail, while in an Alabama state jail was indicted by a federal grand jury. Same crime, but this time it violated what the feds prohibit. He then pleaded guilty in federal court and then challenged the federal prosecution. The trial judge threw out the challenge and the federal appeals court threw out the challenge. And earlier this week, the Supreme Court threw out the challenge and ruled that if the same event triggers two crimes, one state, one federal, they both can prosecute you. Boy, this is profoundly wrong. The whole purpose of the Fifth Amendment is to prevent governments in the United States of America from doing what colonial authorities did to our forebears before 1776. If they didn't like somebody, they repeatedly tried the person over and over and over again until they got the verdict and the punishment they were happy with. We fought a revolution. We won the revolution. We wrote a constitution. We amended the Constitution. We added the Fifth Amendment. And there's a clause in the Fifth Amendment. The Double Jeopardy Clause was written to prevent those things from happening. But here we are in 2019, and the Supreme Court says it can happen. This is not right. It's not American. It violates your natural right to proportional punishment. What does that mean? That means that a person should be punished 
as people who committed the same crime are punished. Not twice. No crime in America merits double prosecution and double punishment. But the Supreme Court got this wrong. My dear friend, Justice Neil Gorsuch, dissented, along with his opposite ideological uh, number, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and they wrote, the whole purpose of the Fifth Amendment is to prevent a government from trying someone until they get the verdict the government wants. No free society can stay free very long while that is permitted to happen. Welcome to my chambers. There you go. There's uh, Judge Napolitano setting it forth as to why this is a really bad idea. Now, look, you may feel like I don't have a dog in this fight. Never been convicted of a crime. Never tried for a crime. It's never going to come back to bite me. But I'm going to tell you, you don't know that. The sad truth is we live in a time where there are so many laws on the books. I don't care how pure and how carefully you live your life. I don't care how upstanding you are as a citizen. You are guilty of some crime somehow. It's just a matter of attracting the wrong person's attention within government and having them focus their sights on you. They can find something. They can always find something. There, there are so many laws on the books right now as to, to be incomprehensible and more laws being added all the time. I'm not trying to be malicious in, in pointing this out. I don't want you to feel like, well, you know, there's there's no hope here, but... This is one of the protections that was built into our system of government. As Judge Napolitano says, so that when, when, they, when the government tries someone and fails, they can't just keep coming back over and over again for another bite at the apple. I mean, it's, I, I, my, my obvious concern goes to, to the Bundy family, for instance. Remember when they were acquitted there towards the end? I think it was in late October of 2016 up in Oregon. It was a slam dunk, right? Ammon and the other six defendants who were on trial up there in Portland, everybody knew these guys were going to be put away. They were never going to see the light of day again. And yet the jury acquitted them. And the shock was, was very real. And there, one friend who lives up there, he's uh, uh, probably falls a little bit harder to the left, said it was like a punch in the gut. They couldn't believe that the the jury would not agree with the government's case. But when the jury heard the facts, when when the jury was allowed to examine the facts of the case, they realized the government was way overcharging this. If they'd have charged him with simple trespass, it probably would have stuck. Wouldn't have put him away for life, but they, they probably would have had no choice but to convict them of simple trespass. But they went for all, you know, they went all out. The government wanted to prove it's a conspiracy and... You know, all this violent, uh, you know, language of look at all the terrible things they did. And the jury said, nope, not guilty. In Nevada, I think a lot of people, myself included, had a very similar idea that, you know, these guys, uh, it's going to take a miracle for them to not be convicted and put away for the rest of their lives. And guess what? The miracle happened in the form of the truth coming out and the government's case being shown to have been exaggerated. Um, I'm trying to be disingenuously <laughs> portrayed. I'm trying to be generous. So should they have another run at him after it was dismissed with prejudice? Let's pick this up the other side of these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, I'm going to give the phone number here because I think I'm going to need it. 
801-254-1640. All right. I've tested the waters. They appear to be boiling hot, but here I go. I'm going to dive in headfirst. Let's talk about the question, is showing compassion to migrants a crime? This is an article on TheGuardian.com. Mustafa Bayoumi is the author. And he points out how back on the 11th of June this year, a federal jury in Tucson, Arizona, refused to convict immigration activist Scott Warren on felony charges that could have sent him to prison for 20 years. What had he done to merit such extreme punishment? Well, in January 2018, he committed the unconscionable act of offering food, water, and lodging to two migrants who had illegally crossed the U.S.-Mexico border without authorization. Now, Warren's a member of the group No More Deaths, an organization founded in 2004 to stop the epidemic of migrant fatalities occurring in Arizona's unforgiving Sonoran Desert. Their work is constant, necessary, and honorable, says this article. After all, more than 7,000 people have perished crossing the U.S.-Mexico border, according to U.S. government statistics, but the actual number may be much higher. Over a third of those deaths have taken place in the Arizona desert. But the work of no more deaths is now under threat. While most Americans are aware that President Trump has increased border enforcement since coming into office, fewer probably realize that migrants aren't the only ones targeted by his administration. New guidelines issued by then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions back in 2017 order prosecutors to prioritize any case involving the unlawful transportation or harboring of aliens. Now, with Warren's arrest, the Trump administration is putting humanitarianism itself on trial. There's actually a hearing coming up on July 2nd, which will determine if Warren's case proceeds. That the jury deadlocked in this case is a small sign of hope for those of us who hold on to the basic but essential notion of our shared humanity. Make no mistake about it, however, Warren's trial is yet another example that specific of that specific kind of nastiness that's coming to define our age, the one that venerates political borders over human rights at almost any cost. Ours is an era where cruelty masquerades as policy and compassion is increasingly viewed as a crime. And by the way, this isn't just an American phenomenon. All over the Western world, governments are militarizing their borders, ratcheting up immigration enforcement, and prosecuting humanitarian workers. The British volunteer Tom Siotkowski is currently on trial in France, facing up to five years in prison on assault and contempt charges. Last year, or last summer, actually, he was filming French police checking the IDs of volunteers distributing food to refugees and migrants in Calais. When he observed a police officer pushing and kicking another volunteer, Siotkowski complained only to be pushed himself and then arrested. Now, his case has been taken up by Amnesty International. And then there's the case of German boat captain Pia Klemp, currently facing criminal charges in Italy. Klemp is reported to have assisted in the rescue of more than 1,000 people in the burial waters known as the Mediterranean, where more than 18,000 people have died in the sea since 2014. Anti-migrant sentiment was already high in Italy, but with the rise of right-wing populists, such as in Italy's interior minister, Matteo Salvini, the crackdown on migrants and humanitarian actors has expanded. Klemp faces up to 20 years in prison for assisting illegal immigration. More than 11, make that 111,000 people have signed a petition demanding her release. So the gist of the story here is that the, the criminalization of humanitarian assistance is sustained it's widespread and growing. And a recent study by Open Democracy discovered that more than 250 people across 14 countries 
have been arrested, charged, or investigated under a range of laws over the last five years for lending support to migrants. The study found that there had been a dramatic increase in this harassment over the last 18 months, and it targeted figures like a priest nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, a football player, firefighters, rural farmers, ex-soldiers, pensioners, a university professor, and several local politicians. Mustafa Bayoumi says the cases make for painful, if sometimes ridiculous, reading. The Swiss pastor, Norbert Valley, was arrested in the middle of a church service for sheltering a Togolese man who'd just been denied asylum. A high-profile couple in Denmark were convicted of the crime of harboring for giving a Syrian migrant family a lift and taking them home for coffee and biscuits. A French mountain guide was charged last year with aiding and abetting illegal immigration after he rescued a Nigerian woman about to give birth in the snow and drove her to the hospital. He got lucky after prosecutors later dropped the charges, citing humanitarian immunity. She did deliver her baby, though, that night. Now, populists and nationalists will malign these humanitarian volunteers as witting or unwitting helpers of human traffickers. But Mustafa Bayomi says uh, that's simply not true. There's not a shred of solid evidence to substantiate such a claim. And he says the real danger lies not in the humanitarianism, but in its criminalization. In both Europe and the United States, discourses about dangerous migrant hordes invading our civilized lands abound. The migrants, we're told, pose a fundamental threat to our values, to who we are. But when leaders make compassion itself a crime, just what set of values do they think they're protecting? Who needs an invader when we can destroy ourselves perfectly well, one trial of a humanitarian volunteer at a time? All right, I'm ready to take my lumps here. 801-254-1640. Look, I know that people are passionate about protecting our borders. I know that there are a lot of people who are extremely um, on edge about people coming into the country illegally. Whether they're living on the dole or not, or whether they're, you know, taking jobs that uh, we feel Americans should have or not. Some of the strongest and most vehement, uh, you know, language that I've heard has come from people who are concerned that someone is coming to this country uninvited. And there are some real problems. There, there are issues. There are human traffickers, there are drug smugglers, there are cartel members who take advantage of the fact that they can get across the border or they can they can coerce people into carrying whatever illicit things they want carried across the border. This is one of those places where I'm going to ask you to just kind of step back for a moment from from the fear that somebody's going to come here and make our lives harder. And ask you to consider what is the probable outcome when we criminalize humanitarian efforts. See, there have, there have been examples of this before, but they dealt with homegrown humanitarianism. Oh, I cannot remember the guy's name. 90-some-year-old guy. He just died just within the last year uh, down in Florida. I want to say his name was Arnold. I can't remember his last name, though. Um, but he would feed the homeless. And for his troubles of feeding the homeless, he would get arrested because the city in which he lived, I want to say it was Sarasota, had, had passed some kind of a, a, an ordinance saying it's illegal for you to provide food for the homeless population. Even if you pay for it with your own money, even if you are the one who prepared it, they, they cited concerns. And, you know, tell me, stop me if this sounds familiar for safety. 
Why, we don't know. Do these people have food handling skills? Do they have a valid food handler's permit? What's going to happen? They're going to make these homeless people, you know, ill? Well, gee, I don't know. Maybe we should just let them starve, you know, because that would be a lot safer than risking any kind of foodborne illness. Sorry, it just, it runs to ridiculous. But despite the threat of being arrested, this gentleman would subject himself to arrest and the state obliged him on numerous occasions because he would feed the homeless. Look, I know there are people who believe that, uh, you know, this is just going to encourage more homeless behavior. I don't know if that's the case. But this I do know. When we start tinkering with things that uh, that fall outside of the realm of politics, and I'm talking about just being a decent human being, treating other people that like their lives have value, whether they are here with official permission or whether they are homeless or vagrant or whatever, if we make it a crime for people to extend help or any kind of uh, compassionate service to them. I think we're in danger of uh, establishing a precedent that is going to come back to bite us at some point. Nobody ever said that freedom was going to be free of risk or that it would always have, you know, a a positive outcome. But it seems to me if if you're if you're intent on having a less than positive outcome, this has got to be one of the biggest ways to, to make that happen. And that is to, to simply cause the, these people to, uh, to give up, to no longer look at each other as, as human beings, but look at the letter of the law. It just doesn't seem right. 801-254-1640. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801-254-1640. All right, I've touched on the topic of charity, especially the kind of charity that would would treat people who have crossed our southern border illegally like people rather than like, you know, a herd of convicts who rode across on grizzly bears. Now, I know that's going to rub some people the wrong way. But since we're on the topic of charity, maybe it's time that we do a little uh, we delve into the difference between mandatory charity versus voluntary charity because there there's a world of difference here and, and i know i've heard people say i don't want to have to pay for somebody else's you know uh you know sustenance their housing i don't want to have to support somebody who comes over here for the sole purpose of hopping aboard the gravy train and finding themselves a nice comfortable seat i can agree with that but i guess the one place i might differ is i would look more at like why is the gravy train there in the first place as opposed to You know, that person shouldn't be on the gravy train. If we can agree that uh, really we shouldn't be paying for benefits or shouldn't be providing benefits for uh, for people who are just looking to benefit at other people's expenses. Well, then that's that's the kind of uh, discussion we need to have. Now, look, there are people who are truly needy. 
There are people who, for whatever reason, maybe it's through their own bad choices, maybe it's through circumstances beyond their control, find themselves where they need assistance. And this is where we would do well to remember that once upon a time, these things were handled at the individual or at the very least the community level. Churches had specific missions to where they would feed and care for the poor, the needy, the indigent, the downcast. The big difference being they weren't uh, trying to make a goal out of some kind of, you know, political advantage or, you know, uh, creating uh, job security for themselves or, or whatever bureaucracy was involved in helping administer those benefits. And so the benefits were short lived. They were meant to help somebody through a tough time in life, get them to where they could stand on their own feet or move on. And then let them go. And I would I would uh, venture to say that it was a lot more genuine because there was no element of coercion. The people who wanted to give in order to support those who were having difficult times were doing so strictly out of the goodness of their own hearts. Now, look, it's one thing to talk about, uh, you know, people illegally coming across the southern border. It's another thing to talk about the homeless or the vagrant. So let's let's turn to another kind of welfare or mandatory charity that is being played upon as the 2020 election cycle wows up to speed. Jacob Hornberger, writing for the Future of Freedom Foundation, points out that right now you have, you know, literally a couple of dozen Democratic candidates falling all over themselves to offer people free college tuition and other political candy in the hope of buying their votes. And to this, he says, I have a better idea. Let's end all support, all state support of colleges and universities entirely. Now, it's important. He says state support. Let's end the state support. State support of colleges and universities is part of the mandatory charity system we call the welfare state, a system supported by both Democrats and Republicans. It's a system in which the state forces people to be good, caring, and responsible by forcibly taking their money from them and giving it to others. Now, in the case of higher education, the state taxes people and then doles out the money to colleges and universities, which the state then uses to control their activities. So here's the question Hornberger asks, where is the morality involved in such a system based on mandatory charity? Where is the care, compassion and responsibility in such a system? How can a system that's based on mandatory charity be reconciled with the principles of a free society? His point being, in a genuinely free society, you have the right to keep your own money and decide what to do with it. Now, a university has the right to ask people to donate to the school, but freedom entails the right of a person to either say yes or no to the university. So suppose John says, uh, well, I don't support your school. No. Therefore, I choose not to make a donation. Now suppose an agent of that school pulls out a gun and forces John to go with him to an ATM, withdraw $10,000, and hand it over to the school. Would we say that John has displayed care, compassion, and responsibility toward the school? Would we say the school has behaved honorably and morally? Would we say that this is an example of how a free society operates? Of course not. No one in his right mind would say such things. The school's engaged in armed robbery. It deserves to be condemned and prosecuted, not honored and praised. Now, suppose the school heads to the state legislature and says, John is an evil, greedy man who doesn't understand the value of education. He needs to be compelled to take good, caring, to be good, caring, and responsible. 
please enact a tax through majority vote that takes $10,000 from John and gives it to us. Is there any difference in principle between those two scenarios? Of course not. In one instance, it's, it's the school doing the robbing to feather its nest, while in the other instance, it's the state doing the robbing to feather the school's nest. They've just outsourced it to a third party. What are your thoughts? 801-254-1640. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Wow, that's, I thought this somebody had a different phone number for Loving Liberty. You'll find if you listen carefully, there are two different phone numbers, but today, this is the phone number. So you switch back and forth. You're very tricky. I am. I'm elusive. <laughs> Tell me what's on so, your mind. Well, you're talking about the uh, charity and the welfare system and the illegal immigrants coming over and, you know, taking all the freebies that everyone's so concerned about. I, you know, our country's so messed up right now upon... Um, that we give, not only to the illegals, not only to the homeless, not only to the people on welfare, but to the government workers as well. I mean, we, I mean, how do you think all that stuff was orchestrated? All the uh, freebies for the illegals. Do you think the lawyers lobbied Congress and said, "Wow, let's let's get them set up and let's give them some free stuff and get them in here for housing, and then you know we can make some money on." You know, uh, having them, you know, what, what do they call that when you're um, processing these people? I mean, I, illegal immigrants, it's good business for judges and lawyers. Well, it's right? it, it helps provide, you know, job security for the state. See, you need us to administer yeah, all of yeah, this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that too. That too as well. Yeah, and that's one of the, the points I was going to touch on. You know, we're sitting here in the, in the city of Sandy. Now, they're, they're talking about raising property taxes. Sandy. And I called them up this morning, and uh, the reasoning for the property tax raises is they want to hire more fire department people, more police officers, and the Affordable Care Act is what they're saying as far as on the Internet. It's the cost of the Affordable Care Act, and the pension plans is what the gentleman told me this morning on uh, from downtown in Sandy City. They, they're, they're having trouble with the pension plans. They need to figure out ways to get more money for this haven't we learned looking across this nation on how many cities go bankrupt and are in the red because of these great health care that we provide and pension plans that we provide for all of these government employees i mean when does it end what are they going to want us to do cut our wrists and drink our blood next is that going to be the next phase they're not going to be happy until we have the same tax base as new york city and new jersey yeah, but they, they do have the added advantage when, when they do it with that approach. When, when the money's extracted from us this way, the, the people who are in charge will say, well, you wanted this. That's why you put us in office. Obviously, this is what you wanted. Well, that, that's not what they say. They just they, they don't care what you, we say when they're in office, once they're in there. Their main goal is to figure out how to keep this money machine working. I mean, look at all the high-density. That's what I said to them. Look at all the high-density housing you have put in Sandy City. Doesn't that increase your tax base alone? I mean, we should be getting tax breaks for the loss of quality of living in this city with the traffic and the people and the congestion. They have nothing to say. Hey, listen, I appreciate you weighing in on this. We are up against the break, so I'm going to break away here. 
Thanks for weighing in, though. The frustration you feel, I'm sure, is is shared by others. If you want to call in, do so. 801-254-1640. We'll be back on Loving Liberty after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-254-1640 is the number. And we're talking about uh, mandatory charity. It's it's a counterfeit, my friend. It is not the same thing as charity that you freely and voluntarily choose to engage in. Now, you know, this is this is one of those things that for some people will make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we're talking about the homeless or we're talking about illegals, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. But what about when it comes to something that's more of a sacred cow? And, and I'm talking about uh, colleges and universities. Jacob Hornberger is president and founder of the Future of Freedom Foundation. And he gives a pretty great example of, look, if, if the university, if, you, if they were to say, John, we need $10,000 and we need you to donate to us so that we can continue to provide the quality education that we are accustomed to providing. And John says, no, I think I'd rather use that money for causes that I believe in. And so the school were to send an agent to accost John at gunpoint, march him to an ATM, make him withdraw $10,000, and then give that money over to the school. Few people would say, yeah, that's a moral act. But when the school has the state pass a law saying, hey, we need to collect this money from John, we'll do it in the form of a tax. Well, you know, because a majority voted on it then uh, it, uh, if it was done by majority vote, that would cer- certainly change things. And Hornberger points out, there is no difference in principle between those two scenarios. Rather, In one instance, the school is doing the robbing to feather its nest. In the other, it's the state doing the robbing to feather the school's nest. His point being an immoral act, which is the forcible taking of John's money to feather the nest of the school, cannot be converted into a moral act simply by having a majority of elected representatives do the robbing and then distribute the loot. Now, as long as we're talking about principles, or at least the concept of right and wrong, Hornberger points out that equally important is the concept of natural, God-given rights, something that America's Declaration of Independence points out. Liberty is a right that pre-exists government, and it cannot be legitimately infringed upon by government. It entails having the natural God-given right to decide for oneself what you will do with your own money. If people don't want to donate to a college or a university, that's their right. Because it's their money, not the schools, not societies, not the states. One might say, well, but uh, Jacob Hornberger, if people weren't forced to subsidize colleges and universities, they would go out of business. There would be no more institutions of higher learning. But he says, doesn't that critique expose the real nature of the problem when it comes to freedom? It's saying that a free people might choose to use their money in ways that don't involve donations to higher education, and that therefore it's necessary to force them to fund colleges and universities. How can force and freedom be reconciled, given that they are opposites? Moreover, the fact that in a genuinely free society, there would likely be lots of people who would voluntarily choose to donate to higher education. Many years ago, two colleges, Hillsdale College in Michigan and Grove City College in Pennsylvania, refused to accept government monies, not only on moral grounds, but also on the basis that they didn't want to come under government control, which comes with the receipt of tax monies. 
Government doesn't give you anything that doesn't have some conditions or strings attached to it. And Hornberger points out those two schools are still in existence. They're still prospering voluntarily and independently. It's because what they're offering is something that people actually want and are willing to privately and voluntarily support. Moreover, churches all across America rely entirely on voluntary support, not tax-funded largesse. Now, if they can do it, why can't colleges and universities? Here he gets right to the point. Jacob Hornberger says Americans should reject all the political freebies that both Republicans and Democrats offer them in return for their votes and instead raise their vision to a higher level, one that asks the following question. What does it mean to be free? Once people reflect deeply on that question, they are likely to arrive at the following answer. At the very least, freedom means that everyone has the right to do what he wants with his own money. Now, that inevitably leads to more questions. Why should anyone be forced to fund colleges and universities or anyone else with his own money? Why shouldn't people be free to make that call for themselves on a purely voluntary basis? You have some thoughts on that? 801-254-1640. I'll tell you what I think the reason is. Why shouldn't people be free to make that call for themselves on a purely voluntary basis? The reason that we allow or even encourage government to make that decision and, you know, enact taxes and force people to hand over their money is because we don't trust people to make the right decision. I mean, come on, look at any time that any kind of government spending cut is is proposed. What's the reaction I mean, if the words old people starving in the streets isn't part of the, uh, you know, the reason given for why we should never consider cutting these uh, these funds. You know, it'll be then think of the children. Things like PBS. The National Endowment for the Arts, among other things, were told that art would cease to exist if it weren't for the taxpayers subsidizing it. I don't think that's true. And I think we're silly to allow ourselves to be hoodwinked into thinking that, well, you know, th- these things just wouldn't survive. People people wouldn't voluntarily support them. Which leads to the question, why? Why wouldn't they? Because you have some artist or some photographer like Robert Maplethorpe who would use those federal monies to, you know, take pictures of genitalia and, and perverted stuff a crucifix in a jar of urine? Why shouldn't people be forced to support that? I mean, come on, we know what's best for them, don't we? Ooh, there it is. There's there's the attitude. Somebody thinks they know what's best. Somebody believes they know how your money would be better spent or put to more productive use than you do or I do. Seems a little patronizing, don't you think? It sure has the feel of being told, hey, shut up and sit down. And just cough up the money. We're in charge here. You're sitting in the cheap seats. Not that anybody would use that analogy, but... Here's the kicker. People look at some of these taxpayer-funded programs and think, well, you know, none of these things, none of the good things in America, roads, bridges, hospitals, libraries, colleges, universities, would exist without those taxpayer funds being taken from the taxpayers and put to use by, you know, caring, benevolent bureaucrats. But if that's the case, why did these things exist in abundance during the first 
100 plus years, 120 years of American history in which there was no income tax. No, I understand. There was a, there was a brief period of time during the war between the states when there was a, an income tax imposed, and it was immediately shot down at the end of that war by the Supreme Court as, you know, they we're not supposed to have this. Constitutionally, there shouldn't be a direct income tax. Along came 1913, the Federal Reserve Act, the 16th Amendment. Hey, boom, it's constitutional now. But my point is, prior to 1913, were there hospitals, were there museums, were there roads, bridges, libraries, colleges, and universities? You bet your bippy there were. In fact, many of them still endure to this day. And they were all funded voluntarily by people who consciously made the choice, I like this, I will support this, I'm willing to put up the money and make it happen. As opposed to a bunch of, a bunch of uh, taxpayers being fleeced on a regular basis and then the money being taken from them and distributed with them having absolutely zero input on where it would go. If I could paraphrase Darth Vader, I find your, your uh, preponderance of faith in government disturbing. If, in fact, you're presuming that government is the only mechanism by which any of these things could happen. History has shown they could happen, and they happened actually with much greater efficiency than you have when you have a, a very large, top-heavy bureaucracy with tons of overhead that has to be addressed. So here's a radical thought. Let people keep the money that they earn. Well, what if someone decides they don't want to share any of that money for any charitable cause or anything that benefits the community? Well, my first question would have to be, whose money is it again? Is it their money? Did they come by it honestly? If the answer is yes, then it's none of our dang business. None of our business. What they choose to do with that money. Now, if you can make the case, if you can persuade others, hey, this is a really good cause. If you make a donation to us, we will take that money and it will become a sacred trust that we will take your money and give purpose to it. By the way, this is how much of the nonprofit sector works. And there's a lot of great stuff that's accomplished through nonprofits, and it's voluntary giving. It's charitable giving. It's also tax deductible, which doesn't hurt either. Voluntary versus forced. Those are, those are the choices we have in terms of how will we use the money that we earn. Mandatory charity isn't really charity. If you want it to be the real thing, if you want it to be an actual virtual, or I'm sorry, virtuous act of charity, it has to be freely chosen. And that means a person can freely decide, I'm not going to give that money. That's just how it should be. 